1: Uh, we should record, fellas, uh, the process you have to go through with me just before we go on air okay. <laughs> to remind me of what's going on. Uh, Warren and I talk all the time. Warren produces the show and writes it and, and, and scripts it, uh, and we talk you know, beforehand, and I, I said, Warren, I got your notes. I don't think we need to talk. He said, Jim, we need to talk <laughs> to make sure you get it right. How are you doing, Kevin? How was the week? Uh, were you out golfing again?
0: Ah, a little bit of golf. Yeah, and Jim, you know, we have really hit summertime here in Alberta. We're uh, around 28 today, going up 31, 32, 34, 33 over the next few days. So yes, get the golf clubs out and get in the sunshine.
1: Hey, Warren, uh, you're a golf guy. We almost had a Canadian bus through in the U.S. Open. Mackenzie Hughes tied for the lead. Um, so many curlers are good golfers, and, and you play. Uh, did you watch it?
2: Oh, you bet I did. That was a very interesting finish. Kind of interesting was to watch DeChambeau uh, implode, uh, which uh, we can all relate to as golfers, that uh, that happens and it happens to the best of them.
1: Who's the best golfer you know, Kevin, as a curler? Whoa! Well, oh geez,
0: Wayne Madaw has got to be up there, definitely. Uh, but there's a lot of good, uh, uh, good curlers that are good golfers. Quite a few, BJ as well, uh, Neufeld off of the Cui team. It's a terrific golfer, and Benny Heebs I think, thinks he's the best golfer. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> you got to always have fun with Benny. Summertime uh, curlers turn to golf, uh, but we don't. We stay on curling. Let's roll out another show, fellas.
2: Last rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think
0: I'm. I don't think I'm white I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Benny. Don't kill it. Line's
2: really good. Right on the button, guys. Last stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All
1: he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay, boys. uh, the, the curling uh, world goes on, uh, and uh, there's, our Facebook page is crazy active with it. Warren, you're going to talk about some of that. Uh, last week on the show, we discussed an email from Kyler Kleibrink where we talked about uh, burn stones. There was some cu- confusion there for some people, and Warren, you're going to clear that up for us uh, about some of that confusion. Uh, we also talked about making games a mandatory eight ends at the high performance level. Uh, again, there was a huge amount of discussion about that. Uh, meaning, you got to play at least eight. Some guys are walking off before then, and uh, it all—it wasn't one-sided, weren't that discussion uh, about that. Uh, we've got a bunch of emails, and we'll try and get to some of those. Also, great guests that we have coming on, uh, Erin uh, Flowers is the president of Goldline, and she's undertaken a, a program called United We Curl about diversity in curling and, and creating awareness in the sport of curling. Uh, and it's very interesting. I was reading some stuff. Uh, about what their company has put out and a statement that they've made about it and an initiative that they've undertaken. And we're going to talk to her. Our email address, and we'd love to get them, uh, insidecurling at gmail.com. We're on Twitter. You can follow us at Curling Inside. Uh, Facebook at Inside Curling. And our Instagram is at Inside Curling Podcast. Thanks a lot, everyone, to your emails. Keep sending them. Uh, we'd love to read them. Uh, let's get rolling. Uh, Warren, you're going to start with this. Last week on the show, we discussed an email from Kyler uh, Kleibrink, where we talked about burning running stones. Uh, Lots of discussion on the Facebook group about this, and a few people are getting a burned moving stone confused with a touched stationary stone. Straighten us out, Warren, about all that.
2: Yes, to a very large degree, those are two very different situations. And I guess we need to make it clear that if you touch a stationary rock, you must automatically put it back to the satisfaction of the opponent. And so that means if you move a stone where there could be a measurement in question about who shot rock, you have to put it back to the opponent's favor. And uh, that's not been always clearly understood through time. A couple of things related historically uh, in the Facebook group. One was the Oris Melischuk uh, situation back, way back in 1972, that virtually cost the American skip Bob Lamonti a world championship. And that was a situation where Melischuk threw his last rock. He hit, he rolled. The rock stopped the immediate indication was that he had rolled too far, but the Canadian third Dave Romano was just looking at the two stones when Labonte jumped in the air, thinking he'd won, slipped and kicked the one rock in question, which was their stone. And uh, as a result, what should have automatically happened right away was the fact that uh, the, uh, the Canadian should have automatically been awarded the point. But the confusion that took place afterwards, Labani was asked, did I kick the stone? Did you kick the stone? For whatever reason, he said no. And then he measured this rock that had been kicked. So it was a complete uh, wrong application. And I believe another uh, one of our Facebook uh, followers, Shirley Morash, uh, former president of the Canadian Curling Association, indicated a situation with Kevin Cooey going back in 1994 that was somewhat similar when an extra end, uh, his second and... Uh, uh, I believe it was a second. The rock was rolling, and it looked like it was going to probably be the shot stone, but it was still moving, and he couldn't get out of the way, and he hit it. And again, it was a situation, the rock was almost stopped, but it wasn't. But uh, the fact still remains, in any other situations, when you touch a stone, and it's anywhere in question as to who was shot between two stones, automatically you've got to concede it to the opposition because this is something that all curlers need to remember. At the end of every end, people get careless and you should never start kicking rocks until the opposing third has agreed with the third in your team as to what the score was in that end and who scored the points because otherwise some horrendous things can take place. And I I experienced back in my playing days, a couple of situations where somebody Kicked what you thought was an obvious situation, and the other team said, "Wait a minute! I wanted to measure that." So you've always got to be sure, because if you do that, you will automatically forfeit whatever points are involved.
1: Uh, Warren, what happens? Uh, I fire my rock, release the rock, and my sweepers touch it. Do you have to do? Do you stop the stone right away? Or yes,
2: what? yeah. The way the rule is right now, a, a running stone and a stationary rock again, two different situations. Right between the hog lines, and that would be uh, if you touch it. Uh, even when the person's released it before they get to the throwing hog line. uh, You touch it in any way, shape, or form, you stop it right away. Once you get inside the second hog line, as we talked last week, it's a different set of rules, but uh, up until that second hog line, touched stone, stopped right away.
1: Uh, Kev, I I can imagine you've probably been in a situation uh, where this has happened. Uh, Talk about take the fun out of the game if you're looking at that. Did you touch that stone? No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Uh, You you must have been in the throes of that somewhere, Kevin, in your career.
0: Uh, Yeah, the 92 Breyer semifinal playing, uh, of course, a great friend, the late Vic Peters in the uh, semifinal. And and uh, Dan Petrick was sweeping a rock around a guard. So it was over the hog line and uh, falls. Actually, his broom broke. The handle broke. He was, he was sweeping so hard, it broke the handle. So, of course, he went crashing down. And, but nothing seemed to change. The rock went around and dead buried just on the off side of the button. And, uh, and anyway, so Dan said, Duck, I think I hit it. And I'm going, I didn't see anything change. And he said, oh, Yeah, but I'm I'm sure. And I said, well, well, you know, Dan's a super honest guy. That was the ninth end of the, of the Briar semifinal. So we took it off and, uh, and then, and then lost the game. And so we were out of it. And it was funny. So, uh, I will get done and are you sure Dan hit it? And I said, well, i saw nothing. And Dan said, I'm not positive I hit it, but I I think I felt something on my back. So I had to take it off. So, okay, so we go in the, we couldn't find anything on the replays. So we actually went into the TV truck and they actually went frame by frame. And sure enough, after Dan fell, the rock went further, which is impossible per frame. So Dan did slightly touch the rock and sped it up just a a touch and uh, so we definitely made the right decision in pulling that stone in 1992 but that's exactly the thing like did you hit it i don't don't know i'm not sure And, and you know but luckily um dan felt he did we pulled it because definitely in replays after you would see the frame by frame the rock you know increased in speed which is impossible so dan obviously did touch
1: it on his back and he made the right call and that's fantastic Warren, it must have happened in your day, particularly back when you played, when when guys were drinking, <laughs> <laughs> till the game got more serious. <laughs> oh,
2: yes. Uh, we've all been involved in those situations where uh, we've burned stones, and, and I was a sweeper. The sweeper next to the rock is usually the one that sometimes would get crowded by the front uh, sweeper, and uh, would cause you to hit the stone. And of course, this is as a sweeper in the sport of curling at the top level, this has got to be the number one thing in your mind in any critical situation. Don't burn the stone. And uh, I know it was always in my mind.
1: We talked last week uh, about making games a mandatory eight ends. There was someone brought up the fact uh, that they don't like players walking off, Kev, when they're, it looks like they are they got no shot. But they're mathematically not eliminated, but, but almost 99% sure. They're not going to make it, uh, so they they call it a game. Uh, there was a huge, huge amount of discussion on our Facebook. It seems there's some confusion between top high-performance play and regular club play or Bondsville play. Warren, what, what's going on with all this? Uh, what's happened this past week since we brought this up?
2: I found it rather interesting. I think there was something like 85 comments on this thing, and what I found very interesting about it was, again, the inability in the sport to separate the difference between the regular club or Bondsville play and play at the high performance level or, or championship level. And, and it's a different situation. So in your curling club or your bond spiel, if you want to have a situation where you can concede whenever you want or after four ends, no problem. That's uh, there, There's no spectators involved. There's no television involved. And those are certainly rules of that competition. But what we were making the point of last week, at the high level, and I sort of look at it this way, if someone's paying money to watch a competition, or if there's a television network involved where, again, there's money involved, I believe if the game is eight ends, it needs to be played eight ends until it is mathematically impossible for the other team to win. And I got into a back and forth with a couple of people. I said, let's compare it to match play in golf. If you're down six with six holes to play, do you concede the match? Because you're probably not going to win. No, you don't. And and I think at the top level of the sport of curling where there's money involved, uh, either people are paying to watch or there's a television network who's selling airtime around it. It needs to be whatever the regulation is. If it's eight ends, it needs to go eight ends or mathematical elimination or the same thing with 10. And so I think that's where we need to clarify the confusion. What happens at the club level or an area where there's nothing involved from a monetary point of view from where spectators or television, it doesn't matter. But at the top level, I th- I think it matters.
0: Yeah, this is one place where I think the game will change uh, right away. And uh, I don't have huge, strong feelings either way, other than for the fans, if they want to watch a, a certain person and the curling game has changed. It used to be that the events where you paid and all the, you know, the big crowds would come to their 10 day events and people would buy the $400 10 day package and they would come and they would watch every game. It's not like that anymore. People are busy and they might go, okay, I can buy the Thursday afternoon. And I have got enough time Saturday evening to go and have a glass of wine and watch a curling draw. So they don't make a lot of games. So if they're a big, doesn't matter who, Brendan Botcher fan and, and they want to come watch, but they're only going to watch. They went Thursday afternoon. Unfortunately, Botcher wasn't playing. So they're going to get to watch Botcher one time Saturday night. Well, if they're a huge fan and all of a sudden they get down a bunch or up a bunch and. And that's it, five ends or four 4 ends and it's done and everybody leaves the ice. Well, that's pretty disappointing for that fan that only had time to come to one or two draws. Um, I was lucky enough to go to the 2001 masters uh, golf and I was so excited. And there was a group, of course, the old guy group at the time. And that was Gary Player, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas. Now those three guys were you know, older at that point. They're not going to win the tournament. They're not going to make the cut, but I followed them for quite a few holes just getting to watch these legends of the sport absolutely loved it i didn't care if they hit every shot good or made every pot it didn't, i don't, don't matter and you know and then of course uh, uh all the different golfers uh greg norman another guy i loved so you know i'd walked back started on 18 walked backwards down the course and then ran into the player palmer nicholas hope turn around and follow them for a while and then keep going, Greg Norman. Oh, geez, Greg, that's fantastic! I didn't even care what his score was, and I think that's a big point of it: is that it doesn't matter um, to a lot of fans if they're a fan of the team, what the score is on the board. They're there, they're there to watch and, and cheer for, and and just you know just enjoy watching their favorite athlete do what they do. And in curling, you know, you've got these great athletes like Rachel Holman and and Jennifer Jones that people just love to watch, and Anna Hasselborg, who's just huge now. These are things I think that are important to fans. And I think that in curling, yes, when the game is mathematically over, I think you shut it down. If you're nine down, if it's ten to one going in the last end, you don't play the last end. That's silly. But if you're seven, you got to play it. I understand the odds of winning are very, very slim. I get it. But but it's not mathematically over, and we have to play those those last ends.
1: What they got to come up with, you guys, is uh, I I understand what you're saying, Warren. Where, you know, the we, we've got sponsors that we're responsible for, uh, and we and we've got to be accountable to them. Um, you know, they've they've bought three hour packages or something. But uh, you you get a bad game, you get a lopsided game, Warren. Um, we've got to get to a stage where you can get out of that game, uh, the one they're televising, and flip to another sheet of a game that's more competitive.
0: No question. Yes. If, if things are out of control, um, yeah. And at, in Sportsnet,
1: uh, Curtis Saville will come over
0: to talk to us on the, on the headphones and say, well, guys, this one's out of control. Which sheet do you think we should go to next? And, and, uh, and then Joan will say, well, sheet B is actually a pretty good game. It looks like it's going good. So, okay. So we dive over there and, and do that game. But of course that's on television when it comes to, uh, to the people in the building, the bums in the seats there's particular teams they want to watch and if they leave the ice that that's the end of it for them
2: and also you got to remember we get down to playoff games and semifinals and finals there's only one game on the ice often and uh, that's the total focus 100 percent and if that doesn't go with the limit uh, you've got all kinds of issues and I look like it from a player's point of view they've got sponsors and they got uh, names on their uniforms and all of a sudden it's an eight-hand game and you concede after five ends, you've taken yourself off television for three ends, which is detrimental to your own sponsors. So all in all, it's it's not the best uh, decision from their point of view either. And I'm sure that they probably never think of that when they concede those games, knowing that there's three more ends of television time potentially for me here if, uh, if I stay out here. So I think it's just something that needs to be rethought. And it's again, it's the difficulty that curling has had with many things is separating the difference between the high performance level of the sport and the recreational level of the sport. And it's to some degree to do with the, the way the Breyer Scotties have been it kind of all blends together. And uh, there's been need for a long time for some distinct lines to be drawn, just like every other sport that exists. And I thought the Olympics and then the Grand Slam would have would have made that far clearer than it is today. But uh, it's not to the benefit of anybody, in my opinion, to have it all blurred.
1: Okay, let's, let's whip along. I love this email. Uh, that we got from Kent Cronin. Hey guys, I continue uh, to enjoy your podcast. Please keep up the good work. I love the players interviews. Here's some questions I would love if you could answer them. Uh, I'm guessing, Kev, before I give you this question, that Ben Hebert would be broke. Uh, cause it says, are there fines for swearing if the game is on TV and the player is mic'd? I, I think Jonathan sent us an email that there is. Is it 250 bucks, uh, Kevin, that you get fined and then 500 after that? And for every time, fall after that, if you keep swearing?
0: Yeah, I don't think it's standard throughout all the different events. I think Jonathan probably sent from the Grand Slam point of view. Um, I'm not exactly sure of, of how it all goes. Uh, you know, I haven't played for a while. Um, but in my day, yes, there was fines. There still is today. And Ben Hebert has definitely been fined. I know that for an absolute <laughs> fact. He, he'll likely get fined his next game he plays. And he hasn't even played that game yet. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> and and then,
2: one more, of your teammates, Kevin. That's been fine. I can attest to. It's John Morris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: sure, yeah, Johnny Mo. But yeah, there are fines, and uh, fines are important. And uh, you know what, though, um, the the person in charge of sound, Andrew Stokely, does a lot of work with Sportsnet. He's in charge of audio in the truck, and uh, they can help a lot by knowing the game. Andrew's a curler it's important to have a curler as a sound guy because they can shut those mics off, especially on people like, like Benny. And, you know, something's common. If things don't work out right, they can, they can save the day on that. So yes, there's a lot more swearing goes on on the ice than what we hear of course, in television land, because, because the, the sound people in the truck are so good at their job and, and sometimes it sneaks through and that's sports and, you know, it's unfortunate, but in a high, high, uh, energy and and, uh, high pressure situation sometimes things come out that you you don't want to and it it happens
1: and sometimes it gets across the airwaves but not very often it's pretty good if i was ben hebert uh before the start of the event knowing i knowing i got a potty mouth uh it's 250 for swearing i would go in and just drop a check off for 22.50 And say, okay, I'm going to do it about ten times, Kev. Okay, here's
2: the cash.
1: Okay, (laughs) just pay. Maybe I can get a deal. Can I get a deal if I pay up front?
2: Except according to Jonathan and the Grand Slam, that's the first offense. The second one is five (laughs) hundred.
1: Yeah, half a Gino. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Give him five grand, Benny. Each event, you'll be okay. Let her fly. Second question from Kent. There seems to be a habit of after a shot, the players in the house on the same team as the ones who just shot, will raise their arms or sticks up in acknowledgement. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, way to go. I can see doing this on a shot that works well, but why is it done on shots that are that, that don't work out well, Kevin? I, that's true. I see them. you know, the guy, he totally missed the shot, the players sweep, and then they raise their arms like they just won the gold medal. What's up with yeah. that?
0: <laughs> well, they, they raise the broom in acknowledgement that uh, uh, probably in that case, it's a, uh, threw it pretty well, something like that it wasn't a complete blunder um but not always do the shots work out but i think it's more of a message uh from skip to thrower that usually in my case if i did that that meant that the the person threw it right up the broom and i just you know something happened or i gave the wrong ice or whatever the case may be but you want to acknowledge the player
2: that hey that that was actually a good throw yeah it means it's okay i still love you
1: yeah there you go exactly yeah you're still on the team jim okay yeah Uh, number three, you're tied in the eighth with hammer and you have an easy shot to either blank or score one. What do you do?
2: I think there's a basic rule in the sport of curling when given the option of scoring one or blanking the end, you will choose to blank the end to keep the hammer. Um, you never want to take one unless you have to, unless it's the last end and score is tied. Because your advantage, your opportunity to score is when you've got the last rock. And as soon as you take that single point, and I know there's this philosophy about odd ends and even ends, but I think when it gets right down to it, the most important thing is to maintain control and that's to keep the hammer.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Hold on to that hammer. We have seen it though, Jim, that was a good question um, by Kent, because we have seen some teams that will take a point in eight to go one up playing nine, giving up the hammer. Um, I wouldn't do it and not many teams would do it, but Good question to ask because I have seen it lately done a couple of times, but I, but I think to Warren's point, hang on to that
1: hammer. Are you allowed to start sweeping behind a rock before the rock is moving? So is that question where I'm meaning you're, you're, you're the skip down, uh, watching, uh, watching a stone being delivered, they're trying to move out a stone, can, can you sweep that rock, is that what they mean Warren, can you sweep it before it's moving? Is that what that question
2: i think i think they're talking about a rock in the house that's uh going to potentially be removed with the stone that's coming down and can you start sweeping it before contact is made and the answer is no and i know this happens behind the t-line where the rights are pretty much equal except the playing side does have the first right to get next to the stone but basically if there's a rock coming down is going to strike a rock behind the t-line and you want to start, quote, warming up the ice, that's supposedly not supposed to happen. You're not supposed supposed to start sweeping until the stone starts to move. And I know that's uh, that's done quite often. And it's back the old story of the situation behind the T-line at the playing in, where the rights of the sweepers or the teams become kind of equal, where each team can have one person that can sweep behind the T-line. Um, and I know back in my day, this was uh, a common thing that would happen. So your rocks coming down the ice and it's maybe a little fast. And so your skip and mine weighing 270 pounds would just stand on the T line until the rock got there. So the other guy couldn't start to sweep or couldn't warm it up. And it goes back to the old story again. I, this is another rule. I believe the sweeping behind the T line that maybe, uh, by the opponent should have been taken out a long time ago. I don't really see. The need for, and it's the only time in the sport of curling where you can actually do anything to uh, possibly it prohibit your opponent from succeeding. So, but back to ask answer Kent's question you can't start sweeping the rock before it starts to move. It'll,
1: Kev, why, 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 Kevin, why don't we just be allowed to sweep any rock anywhere at any time? How about that? It's <laughs> and then
2: we, and
0: you got to have your shoulder pads and your helmet on. <laughs> yeah, that's one. That's one part of the game where uh, it, it does get exciting when uh, the rock is coming to the T line and. And the other team wants to get on that thing to carry it as far as possible. So, of course, the other team is going to block them until the last second. And you get some good cross-checks going. And uh, over the years, there's been lots of fun uh, in that regard. So uh, that's kind of the only body contact part of our sport, really.
1: I'll tell you what, if that was allowed, you're allowed tackling and curling? If they had allowed tackling and curling? I think Warren, Warren's a little feisty, Kev. Okay, I wouldn't want to get in his way okay he's going to take you to old football player
2: i've always said if you want to make curling really exciting is make the area between the hog lines open territory and each team has two people out there and the object of one team is to stop the other from trying to interfere with your stone <laughs>
1: <laughs> that will be great uh thanks a lot kent for those questions uh we really appreciate them. we really appreciate all your emails uh very good boys when we come back uh, we've got our guest, Erin Flowers, who's going to come on and tell us about a great program that, that Goldline, she's the president of that company, uh, that Goldline is involved in. So stick around. We have talked about this before. In mainstream sports, you've heard it all the time about what they're doing about racialized people in sports, uh, you know, in football, basketball, baseball, uh, hockey. We've heard about initiatives that they're taking and the awareness, you know, we've got to give those sports kudos for developing awareness. And I've got to admit, I'm guilty uh, about not thinking about curling when it came to this. Um, Aaron Flowers is the president of uh, Goldline. Uh, it's a curling company, the biggest in the world. Uh, I, I read a couple of things yesterday that your company put out, Aaron. And like I say, uh, I, I just thought curling was immune to this thing. And I'm, I'm guilty as charged for not, uh, considering that there is a problem with this, uh, with racism and the sy- systemic problem that it's been. And, uh, we really want to welcome to the show and congratulate you on this initiative, Aaron, that you guys are taking. Welcome to the program. Good to have you.
3: Oh, thank you.
1: Let me just read Aaron uh, what you got what you you guys put out your company put out uh, and what you're saying about this. The program is called United We Curl and it's an initiative developed by Goldline in continuation of our ongoing commitment to fight systemic racism and promote inclusion in our sport. This falls directly from the statement we released in the summer of 2020 outlining our solidarity with Black Lives Matter and pledge to open up curling for racialized persons and people who identify as belonging to communities pushed to the margins in our society. We're committed to addressing inequalities in curling, especially for those who do not feel safe in our curling clubs. By opening up those spaces, curling can truly meet curling's vision of a fully inclusive and diverse sport. Um, talk about that, Aaron, how this all
3: came together. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a, a different space for our company for... Um I believe the industry. And I think um, globally, people became more and more aware of the issue of race in maybe general, I would say, and then also in sports. And I think as a company, we, I guess a little over a year ago, just really sat down with ourselves individually. And then we also ended up uh, just meeting as a team and, and recognizing that um, You know we really truly haven't done enough you you read the statement and that's um we we stand by that and uh i'm very grateful for two business partners that we all align in this space and as an ownership group we just really set out to make a change and committed to to moving forward kind of no matter what i think it's almost if i'm if i'm really honest it's become a bit of a joke amongst people until this season as to how white curling is and it's kind of you know myself i've you know jokingly said how vanilla my industry is and i don't think anymore it's there, there's nothing funny about it and i think that i had to really look at myself and i um i know that kevin himself knows a bit of you know my own story of having a black son and recognizing that um there's a real duality to his experience in curling and it has been nothing short of incredible he has been very well i mean the curling community have been unbelievably kind to him and in the same breath, I've never seen more racism that he's experienced than in the curling clubs. And as hard as that's been to be front row seats as his his adopted, um, I've adopted him. I think it for me it became I have to do something about this. He is not welcome the same way I am, strictly due to his skin color in the sport that I would die in a sword for. So what are we going to do? Sorry, that's a little heavy, but that's kind of where I'm coming from.
1: No, that's good. People need to know it. As I say, uh, when, when I launched into reading your statements yesterday, I said, "My God, this is—you know—why why would they be immune to this thing?" You know, um, unfortunately, as you say, this thing—this thing—happens, and and you get great response from the curling community, but also some experiences that we're really trying to get rid of. The program itself, uh, Aaron, tell us about the curling broom or the brushes that you're you're talking about. Was the f- the first part of this initiative that you guys looked at?
3: Yeah, I think um, I couldn't, I I just, um, the timing of having a a dear friend, but also Dr. Richard Norman kind of coming on board with our company as an advisor in this space was absolutely key to us moving forward in this initiative. So last year uh, we made the statement, uh, Rich is working with us. We started doing a couple um, Instagram lives and out of that came discussions with the racialized community in curling. And I think out of that came lived experiences and out of that comes awareness. And suddenly we as a company are going, what are we going to do here in terms of um, something moving forward that shows that this truly is a value and we aren't gonna just keep our, like our words won't be hollow. And so we, you know, just a couple of people that really I have had the honor of working with is Andrew Paris, um, Deborah Martin, and Graydon Yee Lewison. And these three designers um, from racialized communities. It just came to the forefront. And and I have to say, I was it was last fall, I was wondering, what can we do as a company to really um, make it public that this is something that we we value. And I I can't, uh, I was reading articles all over about big, small, micro sized companies making changes, and making considerable change. And basically, the curling brush is probably the most prominent product on the scene. I mean, other than your actual uniforms. Um, and I just thought to myself, what if we did something with these three people that have really changed us as a as a company? And they designed and we gave full creative um, freedom to them to do whatever they wanted that would represent their community and their message. And to be honest, I wasn't like... It just, these three were it. They were the people. And I think that's kind of how it started. And then we ended up saying, okay, this is one initiative of many. And what are we going to call this? And uh, Andrew Paris is uh, a Canadian curler out of Truro, Nova Scotia. And he actually, uh, it was a bit of a collaboration, but he did come up with United We Curl. And then we ran with that as our kind of parent initiative. And one of the projects in that initiative is the brush designs.
1: You talk about uh, Dr. Richard, who's on your board, and you, as you say, he was extremely helpful. His topic up for his PhD back in January 2020 was on diversity in curling, and your statement or your company's statement was, his research was fresh, but at the same time, painfully accurate. Um, can, can you give us a little synopsis of that, of, of his take on the whole thing?
3: Yeah. Um, Richard's story is pretty... Pretty powerful. In fact, uh, Rich wouldn't have probably written his uh, um, dissertation on diversity and curling if it wasn't for him and I having a, a long night in Toronto after several pints. And I made him promise me he'd come to a bond Spiel after um, my travel season was over. And he said, "I'm in." And it's—I uh, don't want to speak for him, but he had a weekend that he'll, you know, caused him to see everything incredible about our sport and continued as he left and throughout the weekend to still feel like an other amongst everything profound that he experienced. So I think uh, Rich's story himself is is incredible, but I think his research, you know, it is it is painfully accurate. It is the history of curling doesn't lend itself well to inclusivity. And I think as I've delved deep into learning and just sitting like, and I say sitting back, not without, I just, I was in a very, I was in an educate me and listening mode for a lot of this past year and will continue. But I think it is. I I look at um, not everybody's experience is mine. Not everyone's experience when I'm on 89% of my phone calls in curling is that of a person in a racialized community when they first walk into a curling club. And I think it's been that way historically. And Rich's I mean, his PhD is, or sorry, his uh, dissertation is obviously rather lengthy as they are. And if you read through this, it's uh, it's quite a powerful layout that he had, his approach he took. And I actually was honored to be there the day he became a doctor. And to hear these other profs in a room at the University of Waterloo, you know, delve deep into curling was, a, you know, I felt like I, wa- I, I wanted to have a summit around this. It was one of the most, I, what I thought was going to be, you know, a day to go and Support my friend because it, it was an incredible moment was a real day for curling was what i I felt in the end
1: Tell us about goldline what's what's happening equipment wise what's the biggest change uh, that you've seen in the last little while how's business uh, during covid uh, bring us up to speed
3: I believe I can actually say that goldline curling has survived a pandemic it's uh, it's our first i' uh, I'm not sure um, how uh, you know it's been the roller coaster that everyone's experienced And just when you think you're having the worst day of your life, you don't think it's, you're just, you're not alone in small business. I think everyone in Canada, um, you know, it's an understatement to say we took a hit, but, uh, couldn't be more proud of our team. Um, I have two business partners, Pete Townsend and Andrew Brett, who the three of us, um, we've never been tighter and it's not for, for having not gone through hell, but, um, we've made it, we, we out of the gate last year, um in march of 2020 and recognizing that this wasn't just a couple weeks and i wasn't going to hang tight at home while the women's worlds didn't happen as i was on my way to uh to prince george and i believe whew, we took the opportunity we made some hard decisions out of the gate that were very hard and it's uh, it, it will continue to be the most di- difficult year of our careers but we also did make hard decisions out of the gate which we're now being rewarded for in terms of being able to get through this and rec sport as a whole took such a such a hard hit and curling is obviously in that and i i think where we're coming from now is uh i've often said it anyone who's ever had curling on their bucket list and lost the ability to have any type of experience in the last 16 months um, i want to make sure those people will get on the ice this coming season like if you've ever wanted to curl we're going to make sure that we're a part of the industry that helps you get back get try this sport
1: that's me i'm right there i'm your guy yeah, i'm your guy oh no no
3: <laughs> there are some exceptions i believe yes
0: <laughs> well aaron uh thanks a lot uh, for coming on today and obviously uh you and i go back a long time and even with your dad doug uh i don't know i've been doing business with the gold line family and the company for god i guess since the late 80s for goodness sakes it wasn't with your grandpa ed though I didn't, I didn't do any work with Ed, but I did with Doug. And now, of course, with with you, Andrew and Pete. But I want to go back to United with Curl, because that, that's a terrific initiative. Um, I would love to hear your, because it's been about a year now, just the responses of two different groups. That would be the fans and curlers, recreational curlers, but then also the top curlers um, in this initiative. I see so much social media when it comes to the top players in our game. They're very proud of this initiative that you've uh, you've went with. Um, and I'd like to hear your th- your what you hear and what you talk to uh, as far as fans and top curlers, and not just in Canada but around the world as well.
3: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm 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 very proud, and and I I think calling out the really a, a couple teams that really. Um, stood up were, were Rachel Holman's team, uh, Brendan Botcher's team, Jason Gunlinson's team. And um, there was some great representation in the U.S. as well um, with uh, Chase Sennett and Monica Walker. Now, if I'm really honest, um, yeah, we're seeing some people use their platform. And uh, I think there's there's room to grow there. And I'm excited about that coming into a season where you'll have more people on the ice talking about a hard conversation. And I think when I talk to my friends in the BIPOC community and racialized communities in curling and outside of it, when you kind of ask them what you can do as um, someone, uh, you know, in a privileged position, they just say, can you keep talking about race in your sport, Aaron? Can you just keep talking about it? And I think that we all know it's it's not a comfortable conversation. I mean, all of us could talk all day and night about curling products, you know, sweeping, you um, events, all kinds of stuff. But when it comes to talking about race, it's just not a comfortable conversation. So these curlers who have stepped up and stepped out, I'm so grateful to be associated with them.
0: Yeah, you know, I I really think it is something that's important to talk about. Uh, uh, because you know, in Canada, of course, that's from my point of view, I'm a, I'm a small of a born in a small town in in Alberta and in, in the middle of the farming community. So where I come from, of course, it's a little two-sheeter and 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 you just grew up traditionally in our sport that's just the way it is but you know warren and i've talked about in growing our sport well our sport can grow like crazy if, if we allow it to and uh, i think this is terrific uh, part of it um i do t- as you know aaron um uh, quite a lot of teaching in the states i'd like to hear your thoughts on the us um as far as growth maybe a little bit different than canada it seems to be different when i walk into clubs the traditional curler in canada And the traditional curler in the States tends to be kind of different. The average age is certainly different, much younger in the U.S. than in Canada, and seems to be uh, more diverse in the U.S. than in Canada. Do you find the same, or am I just sort of maybe reading more into it?
3: No, I find the same. I've often come back from any business trip in the U.S. or anytime I'm in the U.S. I have, uh, I lived in Atlanta, Georgia for almost five years in a former life and career, and I Often come back when it comes specific to curling and say, "Us Canadians have so much to learn about what they're doing in the U.S." Obviously, some exciting stuff is happening down there, and part of it is because of their um, ability to turn the switch back on a bit faster than us uh, with COVID. They are, if you have heard about what's going on in in the Southern curling, uh, Southern California, and curling LA, it's just to me that excites me almost more than anything going on right now because it's the future of curling, and I do believe that the U.S. Um, are on the right track and I, I actually love what they're doing from the top as well at the usca they they did put out a statement as a um a large you know sporting organization you know did call out the issue of race and i do believe that is going to be something that um does uh you know separate them a bit in the, in the right way of going on the, a track that to me is the future of curling you know I've, I've been reading a lot and doing a lot of work in the area of um race in sport. And they've said, if your CEO can't become your CDO, your chief diversity officer, it has to start from the top. And so I think the States is doing things to create the true inclusivity of our sport, uh, right from the top.
1: Aaron, uh, you, you talked about your son, um, and the curling community being so great. Um, I mean, one of the uh, great attractions to curling, uh, certainly for me and for many, many people at all levels is, uh, how grassroots it is, uh, how down-to-earth the curling community is, uh, how friendly, how fun, uh, you know, everything from from the curling itself to socializing and, and partying and stuff like that. You had talked about your son had experienced racism. Uh, can you give us an example of what happened there? You, you talked both about him having a fantastic experience and being embraced by it, but at the same time, the cold reality of racism that happened. Can you give us an example of what did happen that made everyone look up and go, whoa, Whoa, we got a problem here.
3: Sometimes I wish that I could interview my friend that was with me this day as well, because I think that uh, she's had a couple powerful moments when it comes to the reality of um, you know not being white. And uh, I think that the curling club is. Um, I do want to make sure that it's it's mentioned how incredible the curling community have been to Draylen since he has been. Oh gosh, Kevin, you. I I think the first time you met him might have been when he was four. Like I've known him for years, so I think. Um, when I think back to how long, he's now 21, but he started curling uh, when he first um, moved here when he was 16 years old from Atlanta. And one thing that was notable to me was he tried a lot of different sports. And the only sport he mentioned to me that he knew he noticed he was black was in curling. And it was just an observation. This kid loves life and just tries everything. But I was uh, actually dropping off some an order to a curling club. And I had my hands full of boxes and so did my son right behind me and a gentleman uh, a middle-aged white gentleman held the door for me as he noticed my hands were full and Draylen, whose hands were equally as full he just let the door slam on his face and i said to him i said excuse me he's with me like can you open the door for him and his exact response was oh i'm sorry i didn't realize he was with you and you know as his um his mom i tend to have a almost visceral response to this and I dropped my boxes and I said he's not just with me he deserved to have the door held for him and this guy just looked at me and kind of shrugged off like well you know I didn't know he was even at the club I didn't realize he's with the club and I was like everything you're saying sir is not helping your cause so um I think at the end of the day you know here's my kid holding gold line boxes that are matching mine and I just that was one moment um I've often said my storyline in this space is having a black son who until people realize he's with me, he's treated differently. And that is in the curling space.
2: Let's talk a bit about goal line in the curling business, because unlike Kevin, uh, I did know your grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Uh, interesting enough, I and mean, goal line goes back in 1967, and interesting enough, um, I, I'm quite a bit younger than your grandfather, but nevertheless, we were in the same business Really, at the same time, he was established, and I was getting into it, and we both uh, actually represented Midwestern broom myself in Alberta, and uh, and of course in Ontario. And always interesting that Gold Line had its own line of corn brooms. I remember one in particular called the Otter, that was their broom, but it was actually made by Midwestern. So there was a connection, and of course your your father Doug, him and I worked together with uh, the Briar and uh, and merchandising for a ten year period, I think, from about nineteen ninety till two thousand. So. Uh, I've known your family in the curling business for many, many years, and uh, both Kevin and I have been in the equipment business, so we are familiar with it. Tell me something today. What exactly uh, is Goldline's focus today? Uh, you're into equipment that's primarily uh, being used by the players. I, are you still in rink equipment as well? Or What exactly are you guys uh, selling these days at Goldline?
3: Yeah, I do. Uh, it's, it's neat to hear you talk about my grandfather because I think... Uh, he would be uh, very excited that I'm on a podcast with you right now. I, um, yeah, we are in the equipment business Goldline and we, our focus is grassroots curling and, um, absolutely we make our product, um, to perform at an, um, at every level. But, um, the recreational curler is truly who, who Goldline is set up for. And I think that grassroots and the growth of this game is, is really, um, Andrew, Pete and I's, um, future. So, grassroots is uh, who we are. We have quite an extensive line of product, everything from everything you would use to curl. We are really big on tr- on getting uh, curling shoes to us are a part of equipment. So we're really jumping headfirst into the rental game. And you know, the likes of Curling LA and um, other curling clubs globally have really adopted the rental corporate side of the game and the ability to try curling. And um, I think that that's exciting to us. Uh, Actually, another club that's doing a a phenomenal job is Kelowna. Uh, Jock Tire just puts in relentless hours of um, making sure that uh, that rental program runs seamlessly. But yeah, we are an equipment business and um, we really, really love that the recreational curler can come to us and have such a great experience up to the elite curler.
1: Uh, Aaron, uh, does Goldline, are they a manufacturer, for example, of curling brooms?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. We manufacture all our own product when it comes to equipment.
1: Yeah. So, so walk us through that process. What, how, how do you make, how do you make a broom? How's, how's that all work?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, the birth of the broom. Okay. Well,
0: asking the president, how do we make this thing?
3: (laughs) Yeah. Well, if I tell you that, I'd have to kill you. Yeah. No, I, um, no, I'm kidding. It's, um, I, it, it was corn brooms yeah thankfully we've uh we've we've grown from those days but i mean i have grown up in this business there is uh there's an argument out there that i i was possibly conceived in a briar patch i've been around here for a long time so i i think that um when it comes to the brush it's obviously this is an evolving space in curling it has come very far um and in fact come so far to become controversial which i think is a compliment to the sport in many ways which a lot of people look at as something negative but uh, the olympics put us on the map and with that being said we you know have always been in the spirit of the game and just wanting to make product that um represents that spirit and you know, obviously the, the evolution of the curling brush isn't just gold line, this whole weird there's, we're not the only ones in this game. And this industry has a few of us, which makes it all, all the more exciting as well. And I think synthetic came out and that obviously changed the game. There was the Brownie. Um, I mean, Warren, you come sure could give the timeline even better than myself, but, um, here we are now with uh, a couple of us out there with, um, you know, everything from the recreational level, um, pad where you can put. different materials on it to the elite level where we have an approval system, which, um, is great. We all follow our guidelines and we all have something that, um, hopefully people want,
2: it's interesting looking at the equipment, uh, aspect. And this goes back to something I've always had in my mind. There's really no standard set for anything. I've always been in the opinion that sliders, grippers, brooms, uh, design anything that touches the the ice should have a a standard that the manufacturer has to make, but it it really doesn't. And even things like the corn broom, uh, which has long been gone, it's not banned. Uh, you could I've got a dozen corn brooms here. I could break one out and take it on the ice, and within an end the the game would become unplayable. Uh, I guess in, from your opinion, do you think there's a need that standards be developed for any product that uh, goes on the ice? Is that something that should happen?
3: I'm not sure if there's a standard needed for every product on the ice. I think um, people police themselves in this sport in a way that's quite respectful when it comes to club curling. I think if I came out to my Wednesday night league with a corn broom, I would be the talk of the town, but I don't think, um, also that is legit exhausting compared to sweeping now. Um, I do think uh, obviously the the whole world of sweeping has, you know, it's, it's an analysis unto itself when it comes to technique combined with a product is something that, as a company, we, um, we really drill down into an area of equipment. We can't, it's very hard for us to um, know how sometimes someone will use this product that could become detrimental to the sport. I don't know if that's, maybe that's too strong of a word. But um, obviously we have these specs when it comes to how we make product moving forward when it comes specific to the brush. I'm not sure if that's necessary for shoes or this other, um, you know you mentioned grippers as well. Um, gloves is another part of equipment, but obviously that's that's tough to get to a level of performance that could have an advantage. I think it's advantage that you're that we're concerned about.
2: Well, I think also damage. I mean, a slider, depending upon what it's made out of, could, in fact, cause uh, damage to the ice. Uh, gripper, if it's not made of the right material, could, again, cause cause shedding. That's going to be a, a nightmare. So I, I think, you know, as we sit today, and I suggest that at club level, there's not a need to be that concerned. But I think at the, at the top level of the sport, like most sports, if you take a look at golf, um, everything that's going to be used has to be inspected, has to be ensured that it has the... Standard of the of the sport attached to it, and we really don't have that existing in any aspect of uh, of curling, except for the broom pads, I guess. For for the top couple, of, that's that's the one thing that it, that does have a standard to it. Yet, Uh, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe as far as recreational curling, you can still pretty much, from a brushing point of view, use whatever you like. Can you not?
3: Yeah, it's polite. Yes, you're you're correct, Warren. I think that um, clubs can mandate certain leagues in certain areas, and I. You know, I know for at my club um, certain leagues, is pretty open, but you know, if you have a competitive league, they wanna make sure that they've even the playing field. And I did mention, I do find that people do police themselves in the area of brushes to the, at this point. Um, You're right when it comes to shoes and, uh, you know, damaging the ice. And I don't know who I'm more uh, terrified in the curling industry than upsetting an ice maker. So, if we run our product by them when it comes to um ice damage, and they give us their approval, that's enough for us when it comes to shoes and grippers. If we're gonna make a product that damages ice, then we're not gonna have them on side, and that just seems like a an awful idea.
0: Aaron, you're probably gonna stay away from the old broom ball uh, Walchuk and uh Millard Evans' broom ball shoe idea back in the day. <laughs>
3: That does go back. Yes. No, I think uh, shoes are definitely Teflon. I mean, we, we're not getting rid of Teflon anytime soon. The quarter inch Teflon, I think is the industry standard for, for and it's a clean product that, uh, as I mentioned, your ice maker approved. And I think that the whole world of, of shoes has also evolved. And I, I love that it, it's just looking, you know, our company has a, decided that looking athletic is actually a part of the artistic graphic and creativity that we want to kind of explore as a company we have people come in with a pair of custom nike shoes they've bought from sport and they walk into our store and go oh wait hold on you guys already have what i want on the shelf so i don't need to actually get these custom made with quarter inch teflon i i, I love that that's um something that we run into is people think our product is athletic enough that they don't have to go out and buy a Nike or an Adidas shoe, because part of you know of, of course everybody loves Adidas and Nikes, but th- what they don't recognize is when they walk into the arena or their club, sorry, not an arena, they freeze and they come back and they're like, oh no, we forgot about the fact that we didn't think about insulation when we bought a cross trainer.
0: It, it, getting in I know this is getting a little sideways, but um, I get a lot of people, obviously as you know, coming in the store to uh, to get a pair of custom shoes done. But I, t- I try to warn them a lot about the heat from your feet when you're you know, working hard. You know, your feet get hot, they sweat. But a pair of uh, like Nikes or Adidas, normal running shoes, they don't worry about heat going through to the ground or the grass or the pavement. But in curling, it's really detrimental to the ice. And this is to Warren's point of damaging the ice. Because if, you're, if your feet are hot, especially on the, on the gripper shoe, that heat goes right to the ice and you get those flat spots. And the only thing that when I do uh, shoes for people that are custom made, I try to you know, let them know to get a reflective insole in them to keep that heat from hitting the ice. How big of a, uh, I guess, how big of a deal is that because your shoes all come with some sort of a insulation to keep the heat from hitting the ice.
3: Absolutely. And I think it's, it's honestly, it's the difference between we make a curling shoe. We have thought through everything from A to Z as to why this is made for the sport of curling. And, you know, I'm, have a closet full of, uh, you know, lovely looking Nikes and Adidas, but I'm never going to wear them on the ice because I know that they haven't been designed for the sport of curling. And I, to your point, um, there's a lot of work and design and development in the midsole of a curling shoe, and that is a big part when it comes to everything from support to transferring heat to the ice. I also think that um, you know when you get into the elite level playing field they'd redefine the sport in a totally different area and they can, the balance alone, their balance is incredible. And if you take a regular pair of Nikes as well, they're not balanced appropriately for curling. So the everyday Joe that goes out, they're a little more frustrated with even learning the game.
0: You guys spend a lot of your time in the summertime yourself, uh, your family, you and, uh, and your partner, Chris and Dre, and, and of course, Doug, uh, up in Port Elgin. And I know that isn't Doug pretty involved in, uh, in the 2022 tankard being housed in uh, in port elgin
3: yes he is my father went and retired and we bought the business and got hit with a lovely global pandemic which was fun to run and then doug's up here golfing and chairing um curling events coming to town so i think that um yeah he's been doug's been such a great supporter of the sport and um he is chairing the 2022, Port Elgin, or Soggy Shores Tankard, I believe it's called, because there's a, a community here. So he is he's very excited about it. Um, if Doug's not talking about it, we're, we we have to check his pulse, actually, at this
1: point. So. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I love when you said, uh, uh, Aaron, that, I mean, this is a very serious topic, you know, this United We Curl and, and, and racism and, uh, you know, and social injustice that a lot of people are experiencing these days and uh, very serious. And I love when you said, well, when we really got down to the bottom, it was after we had several pints. That's, that's, <laughs> I love that about curling. Yeah, I love that.
3: There's some irony to that though, Jim. Today is my, I'm uh, actually seven years sober today. So that was a while, That I a while ago. There is another aspect to, I gave it my best efforts for years and I did give it a good go. Yeah. You're at, <laughs> you ran
1: out of beer tickets, did you? I seven years ago?
3: tickets, yeah. That was the last day. But yeah, just uh, to comment on the, uh, just really quick to sum up United We Curl. I do believe that one thing, as a community we can do is truly listen to some of the lived experiences of the racialized community in our sport. And that's really what's changed us as a company is listening to the lived experience of someone else walking into a curling club.
1: Congratulations on the seven years, Aaron. I am um, I'll be twelve years clean and sober in August.
3: Oh, wow. Well done, Jim. Nice. This last year I think I might have earned it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No <laughs> was, kidding. Uh, yeah.
3: It got pretty real there. Yeah.
1: Thanks a lot and good luck. Those of us at Inside Curling, whatever we can do to help, I, I, I know Kevin and Warren and myself would do whatever works for you guys. So,
3: Thank you. Well, thank you for having me today.
1: You better. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, sir. Okay, well, another great show, boys, uh, as we move through the summer. Lots of stuff to talk about. Um, uh, Kevin, by the way, um, you had talked about watching, you went to the Masters in 2001. I want to say either Tiger or Vijay Singh won that year. It was the Tiger Slam. Oh, it was that year. Okay. Um, I went to the Par 3 competition on the Wednesday, and uh, at that time, Nicholas, Gary Player, and uh, Arnold Palmer were grouped together. And, uh, it was just crazy that you got to see these guys. I followed them, uh, on that par three and it's always held up, right? You got to wait to hit your shot. They, they were talking, Kev and Warren, about how many holes in one they've had. Uh, I've had two. I've played golf my whole life. I, I've had two. Uh, I know guys who have had multiple, five, six. Between the three of them, they've had over a hundred holes in one. How's that? <laughs> How's that? So you're right, Warren. There's no hope for us. <laughs> uh, Thanks a lot everyone for listening to the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. That's us. We're reaching out to curling clubs all over the world uh, and inviting them to contact us for a zoom call. Uh, we did one a couple weeks ago with a club out of Kentucky. July 12th is when we're doing our next one. So we'll be doing that. Uh, check it out, listen to it. And uh, if you'd like us to do it, get a hold of us. It's something that we do for about an hour uh, and we do it for clubs, you know, for your board of directors or, or your membership in general. Uh, the producers of the show, thanks a lot. Warren Hanson and uh, Amal Delick, uh who's mixed and does the sound design. Jonathan, thank you, Jonathan. By the way, Amal had his baby. We had mentioned it on the last show. Uh, so his life won't change much, Kev. No, he'll be, he'll be, he'll be fine. Congratulations. Uh, Andrew Holland, thank you for your additional support. We'd also like to extend a big thank you to Rod Paulson. He's been fantastic. His company is In-House Strategies and he handles all our stuff on the Facebook page. Boys, that's it uh, for this show. We're back next week. Kev, who's our guest? You've lined someone else up again. Yeah,
0: you know what? Going going into the summer and, of course, with such a big fall coming into the uh, Olympic Games, I thought we'd probably talk to Pete Stetsky and that's uh, the fella who's trying to get the Players Association up and running again. And I think it's a really important job and I want to hear how
1: they're uh, doing and where they're at.
0: So Pete Stetsky will be on our show next week.
1: Thanks a lot, Warren. Uh, you have yourself a good week. Uh, Kevin, you as well. Uh, thanks a lot for listening everybody and we'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Curling thanks Jimmy thanks Jim you're welcome fellas